um, has proven that child tax credits can have a dramatic impact on lessening child poverty. But even just if you're looking at our long run growth potential as a nation, and if you're wanting to promote economic opportunity, living in a country with a lot less child poverty um, is clearly going to, it's going to put our country on much stronger footing. And you have kids who are set up to succeed where there's less stress in the home, there's less uncertainty about the next meal or about paying the electric bill. Uh, It just, if you can do those kind of things to to create uh, a better economic reality for working families and for families with kids, it just sets up the next generation to succeed and makes our country so much stronger. So I think that's where we need to be prioritizing our, our efforts. Any final thoughts you want to share with us about wealth inequality in our country and what we can do about it? This is a problem that's not going to solve itself. If we're going to get a grip on this runaway inequality, we, we need tax reform that's focused on asking more of people with just these extraordinary fortunes um, so that so that we can promote economic opportunity and, and more broadly shared prosperity. Well, Carl, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Policy for the People. We will see you next time. <laughs> Howdy, everybody. I'm Rose Maddox, and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area. Good morning, and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. This week, as Thanksgiving continues to loom, Jeff Godsell reports from Los Angeles on John Houston's essential, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Also, Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time looks at the unusual Anthony Mann thriller, The Tall Target. And in the book corner, some reflections on Quentin Tarantino's new volume, Cinema Speculation. Thus, we begin with Matthew on The Tall Target with Dick Powell. This is an overlooked, classic political thriller made by Anthony Mann and uh, Dick Powell, and it starts unconventional. We have no opening music, just this train, which would be the setting of the story arriving at the station and a bit of a conversation between the engineer and the conductor. Mr. Gannon, running orders. Hello, Mr. Crawley. I see, you never had the like of this. 9.16 p.m., it says here, February 22nd, 1861. Warned, the civil unrest. All trains will operate with caution and reduce speed effective immediately. Well, you can thank the radical Republicans. This boiler will never run on time again. A fine way to run a railroad. A fine way to run a country. Republicans are secessionists. My aim is to bring the flyer into Washington Depot at 9 a.m. Good Lord as well. Good Lord may be willing, but that order to slow down is signed by P.J. Donovan, division manager. Meanwhile, across town, at police headquarters, Detective Sergeant Kennedy, played by Dick Powell, is trying to uh, convince his superiors that there's a plot against the life of the new president-elect. For the last time, will you take action, Mr. Stroud? If you don't, there'll be a shooting in Baltimore tomorrow that'll blow this country apart. What's this? Hogwash. There's still time, Mr. Stroud. Have you seen the evening paper? The president-elect plans to spend tonight in Harrisburg, leaving early in the morning by special train for Baltimore 
where he intends to make a speech before continuing to Washington for his inauguration. Will you telegraph? No! Wait a minute, son. It wouldn't be the new president who's been picked for the shooting, would it? It would, during his speech tomorrow. If you're sure of that, I'll go to Baltimore myself. That's one speech I wouldn't want to miss. <laughs> Are you certain there's nothing to it, Simon? Sergeant Kennedy was detailed for two days to guard Abe Lincoln when he was electioneering in New York last fall. He thinks he's still on the assignment. I'm going to Baltimore tonight. I'll get to someone in authority. You cut across channels and I'll bust you. I'll save you the trouble. So this, of course, sets us up for Dick Powell needing to get onto the train, the Detective Kennedy, and to try and find the conspiracy to shoot the uh, incoming president. Now, there's all sorts of intrigue on getting him on the train and getting him not kicked off the train. But as he's trying to find the suspects, the cross-section of America is uh, shown with the different passengers on the train, kind of like in uh, John Ford's Stagecoach or even, you know, Bret Hart's Outcast of Poker Flats. We have these people all traveling together and they're from different walks of life. And this film really kind of taps into the political situation of America on these days before Lincoln's inauguration. And it kind of seems like half the passengers wouldn't mind taking a shot at Lincoln themselves. Well, we can't say this from too dull, can we? What with the uh, shooting back there in New Brunswick? Does anyone know who the man was who was shot? I wish I knew myself. Restless times. Let us hope the country will settle down after Mr. Lincoln has inaugurated I didn't inaugurate him with a stout rope from a White House chandelier. You sound as if you'd lost a bet, friend. A bet? We've lost the country, Colonel. Six months from today, the United States will be bust. Ogden's the name. Tom Ogden, Hartford. Building supply. Caleb Jeffers. I'm not expecting a boom, mind you, but I can't share your extreme pessimism either. You would if you'd lost as many contracts as I have in the past two months. Nobody wants to build with a war coming on. Lincoln isn't president yet. And if those firebrands in Baltimore have their way tomorrow, he never will be. Your cabin's ready to leave. Oh, dear. I do hope we don't run into violence at Baltimore. I have an appointment on Pratt Street. Anything could happen in Baltimore. It's a nest of secessionists. I'm getting off at Baltimore, too. If somebody puts a bullet into Abe Lincoln, I'll be the first to shake his hand. That man is heading us straight into a war. The story is told with lots of dramatic camera setups and lighting effects by uh, Paul Vogel that uh, sort of hides this kind of studio-bound nature of the film. And it really makes this a taut political thriller and a very bold attempt to engage material, especially about racism and about dissent in America, a subject that a lot of filmmakers at the time would have considered a little too hot to handle. I'm getting off at Baltimore. But you said you were coming to tall trees with us. I'll come to tall trees when it's safe again. When a man can live in peace and in honor. He means when he's finished his business in Baltimore. Yes, when I finished my business in Baltimore. Yes. You wouldn't murder. Not murder. There's a difference between political assassination and murder. What would happen if that warmonger's inaugurated? That would be murder. It would take only one bullet to save thousands of lives, southern and northern. I hope it's mine. This movie combines a nostalgia for the past. People were still traveling in trains in 1950, and this calls back to earlier train travel and how uncomfortable it was. But this movie also looks to the future. 
This is much a political thriller as, say, John Frankenheimer's Seven Days in May or The Parallax View, All the President's Men, maybe even Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Um, at the time, the movie didn't do very well, and it's probably because its politics was a little out of step with what was usually done in political thrillers at the time, and that's about communism and, and protecting the country from foreign threats. And for a change, this movie was about domestic unrest, uh, which makes the film uh, very watchable today, very relevant to our current situation. So I'm talking about The Tall Target from 1950. Let's see, we have Dick Powell. Uh, the name of the character is John Kennedy, and it's kind of an odd coincidence that it's a movie about presidential assassinations, but he's Detective Kennedy, Dick Powell, whose career was kind of changing. He was going into a production uh, or more, and he would do television shows, and he was like appearing on the radio at this time. And so his career wasn't going down, it was just changing. Whereas Anthony Manns was really starting to take off, and by the end of the decade, 1960s, he was producing some of the biggest movies in Hollywood. Also in the cast is Adolf Manju, is this very strange colonel who sort of is helping the detective, but then maybe he's part of the conspiracy. Um, also in the cast is uh, Ruby D as the uh, slave maid of uh, Miss Beaufort, played by ba Paula Raymond, and her brother, Marshall Thompson, who uh, has that business in uh, Baltimore. Uh, Will Gear is also in the cast, as well as Leif Erikson and some others. Um, it's a film that's very watchable today, uh, really overlooked a classic, uh, a political thriller, a great train mystery movie as well. And so uh, this is The Tall Target by Anthony Mann with Dick Powell from uh, 1950. Thanks, Matthew. Next, we turn to Jeff with remarks on John Huston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. When John Huston graduated from the writer's room to the director's chair at Warner Brothers in 1941 with the Maltese Falcon, he also helped Humphrey Bogart become a star. The next year they made Across the Pacific and Bogey was off and running. Houston, meanwhile, joined the Army Signal Corps and while in uniform as a captain, produced and directed three of the best war documentaries ever made. After the war, the first film he would write and direct would be with Bogart again. It would result in his masterpiece and one of the greatest films ever made. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948 was a labor of love for Houston after having read the B. Traven novel back in the mid-30s. A film version had gone through all the start and stops so common in Hollywood. Houston had even begun working on it before the war with a completely different cast. Once again, we can thank the fates for sparing us George Raft and Ronald Reagan in major roles. When Bogart heard that Houston was making the film, he started lobbying for the role of Fred C. Dobbs. Dobbs and Bob Curtin meet up in Tampico, Mexico in 1925. Two down-on-their-luck American drifters sweating in the Mexican sun trying to find enough money to get back home. 
They meet up with a slick American named McCormick who promises them a job out of town for $8 a day, all day, constructing oil rigs. When they all return to Tampico and expect to get paid, McCormick skips out, leaving them with even less. If the city of Tampico looks authentic in Treasure the Sierra Madre, it's because it is. It's one of the first Hollywood films to shoot on location outside of the U.S., although many scenes were also shot back in the studio. It's the rare John Huston film when there's no drama off-screen as well as on, and the treasure of the Sierra Madre was no exception. As shooting in Tampico was about to begin, suddenly the local authorities shut everything down. Now this, despite the fact that the residents and the Mexican government had been so generously cooperative. It seems that the editor of the local newspaper had not been paid off, which was his custom, and he had planted false stories in his papers that the production was anti-Mexican. Fortunately for Houston and for the film, Houston had some famous friends, among them the artist Diego Rivera, who went straight to the president of Mexico. The libelous accusations were dropped. And incidentally, a few weeks later, the editor was caught in flagrante and shot dead by a jealous husband. As Dobbs wanders through the city, he sees an American in a nice white suit and asks him for a handout. Help out a fellow American, he says. Stranger gives him a one peso coin, good enough for a meal and some smokes. He sees him again getting a shoe shine with the same results. This time it's good for a shave and a haircut. When he sees him a third time, the stranger's had enough. This is the last time, and here's another one, just to be sure. The American stranger in the white suit is director John Houston himself. His generosity to Dobbs seems to just be one example of the ebb and flow of a person's fortunes that can be found in the treasure of the Sierra Madre, as well as how fate and personal character are all players. It's a short time later that Dobbs and Curtin are swindled by McCormick, but then in a few days, they see him on a Tampico street. He tries to swindle them again, but in a barroom brawl while the old Mexican men stand and watch, Dobbs and Curtin beat down McCormick. They take their money from his fat wallet, but only what they're owed. That night in a flop house, they hear an old man telling tales of prospecting for gold up in the hills of the Sierra Madre and how finding it can change a man. How greed can be his undoing. That wouldn't happen to me, says Dobbs. I'd take just what I need, he says. Just like he did with McCormick. The old man, Howard, is Walter Houston, John's father, then still a major actor. The elder Houston balked at playing the role at first, considering it a supporting role, before his son talked him into it. It would end up being probably his greatest performance. 
Good fortune falls to Dobbs when he wins a small lottery from a ticket that he almost didn't buy. And Dobbs and Curtin decide to pool the money they have, buy some supplies, and look for gold. They know they need Howard, who is only waiting for somebody to ask. And so the three head for the hills, through the treacherous terrain, the old man showing up the other two with his energy and his stamina. He also knows fool's gold when he sees it. He puts the buzzkill on Dobbs' excitement when he discovers it's nothing more than pyrite. One day, Howard is sifting through the dirt when Dobbs, exhausted, says he's had enough. When Howard starts getting animated and jumping around, Dobbs and Curtin think he's gone crazy. But he tells them they're dumber than the dumbest jackasses. They don't even know what they're standing right on top of. They found gold. Howard explains that it's in the craggy hills above that they'll need to start mining. The hard work has just begun. Crumbling rocks with a pickaxe, hauling them to a makeshift water trough, and separating the gold itself. A fine sand. I thought you just had to find it, pick it up, and take it to the nearest bank, Dobbs says. The three work like a team, and Max Steiner's music makes things seem almost optimistic. But there's trouble ahead. First, there's a stranger, an intruder. And then there's the banditos, pretending to be federales who don't have to show you any stinking badges. But the worst of it comes with the change in Fred C. Dobbs. The treasure of the Sierra Madre is not just a story about gold and greed, but a look at the fragile nature of human character itself. Bogart's performance as the disintegrating Dobbs is one of the finest ever recorded on film. And it leads us through to the end and to the howls of laughter from Howard and Curtin as the Lord or fate or nature or whatever you want to call it has the final say. In the treasure of the Sierra Madre, it was a good night for the Houstons when the Oscars rolled around. John Houston won both as director and screenwriter, and father of Walter won for supporting actor. Only the film lost for best picture. Astonishingly, Bogart was not even nominated, an oversight that's been commented on ever since. One of them being by Daniel Day-Lewis, who said that his approach to the role of Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood was heavily inspired by Bogart's performance. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Finally, here are some comments on the book that all film buffs have been eagerly awaiting, Quentin Tarantino's nonfiction volume, Cinema Speculation. Quentin Tarantino has been vocal about his affection for the work of 
Pauline Kael, who wrote for The New Yorker from 1968 until retirement in 1991. But given his respect for filmmakers such as Don Siegel, Robert Aldrich, Peckinpah, John Flynn, and Toby Hooper, you'd think that he'd prefer Andrew Saris, the longtime Village Voice reviewer who championed the auteur brand of film criticism and ranked the directors in his book, The American Cinema. Well, at least Tarantino doesn't say anything nasty about Saris in his new book, Cinema Speculation from Harper, which covers these directors and more. His favoring Kale strikes one as strange because in 1963, Kale wrote an attack on Saris and other auteurist film writers in an essay published in Film Quarterly and called Circles and Squares. She wrote about Saris and the group of writers attached to the English film journal called Movie, which bears a title which makes it hard to look up on the internet. By the way, Movie still exists as an online digital magazine published through the University of Warwick. The article concludes that, quote, the auteur theory, silly as it is, can nevertheless be a dangerous theory. And not only because it constricts the experience of the critics who employ it, but because it offers nothing but commercial goals to the young artist who may be trying to do something in film." End quote. And here is what Cale wrote about the men writing so perceptively about Siegel, Fuller, Hawks, Walsh, and many others. Quote, Isn't the anti-art attitude of the auteur critics, both in England and here, implicit also in their peculiar emphasis on virility? While Walsh is, for Saris, one of the screen's most virile directors, in movie, we discover when one talks about the heroes of Red River or Rio Bravo or Hatari, one is talking about Hawks himself. I don't think critics would use terms like virile or masculine to describe artists such as Dreyer or Renoir. There is too, something too limited about describing them that way. We might describe Kipling as a virile writer, but who would think of calling Shakespeare a virile writer? But for the auteur critics, calling the director virile is the highest praise because, I suggest, it is some kind of assurance that he is not trying to express himself in an art form, but treats movie making as a professional job. The auteur critics are so enthralled with their narcissistic male fantasies that they seem unable to relinquish their schoolboy notions of human experience. If there are any female practitioners of auteur criticism, I have not yet discovered them. Can we conclude that in England and the United States, the auteur theory is an attempt by adult males to justify staying inside the small range of experience of their boyhood and adolescence? That period when masculinity looked so great and important, but art was something talked about by poseurs and phonies and sensitive feminine types. And is it perhaps also their way of making a comment on our civilization by suggesting that trash is the true film art? I ask, I do not know. And that was Pauline Kale from Circles and Squares. So why would Tarantino continue to lionize Kale, who is discussed 12 times in the book in contrast to three mentions of Saris, when she is so dismissive of the very directors he reveres? His chapter on Don Siegel is textbook auteur criticism and his emphasis on masculinity and masculine environments might make him subject to the very criticism that Kale lays upon Saris and the movie writers that included Robin Wood, Michael Walker, 
V.F. Perkins, and numerous others. Tarantino's book is an appreciation of genre directors of the 70s, Seagulls and those others, whom he contrasts with the hippie New Hollywood of protest films, and then links to the movie brats who embraced the genre and made A-list films out of them, Coppola, De Palma, Schrader, Lucas. The text is bookended by a memoir of watching 70s films with his parents, and an account of a fellow named Floyd who was the first screenwriter he knew. In between, he discusses Bullet, Dirty Harry, Deliverance, The Getaway, The Outfit from 1973, Sisters, Daisy Miller, Taxi Driver, Rolling Thunder from 1977, Stallone's Paradise Alley, Escape from Alcatraz, Hardcore, and Talby Hooper's The Fun House. There are three outlier chapters. One, a charming defense of reviewer Kevin Thomas of the LA Times. A Kale-influenced chapter on the new Hollywood. He borrows Kale's trope that in the early 70s, audiences were afraid of movies. And a, quote, a cinema speculation, imagining what a taxi driver directed by Brian De Palma would be like. That's not the only actual speculation in the book, despite the title, except for a footnote on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Here it is from the audiobook. I've always had an alternative reading of the Body Snatchers movies, Seagulls, Kaufmans, and Ferraras. Each movie presents the pod people in a sinister light. Yet really, almost nothing they do on screen really bears out this sinister interpretation. If you're one who believes that your soul is what makes you you, then I suppose the pod people are murdering the earthlings they duplicate and replace. However, if you're more of the mind that it is your intellect and your consciousness that makes you who you are, then the pod people transformation is closer to a rebirth than a murder. You're reborn as straight intellect, with a complete possession of your past and your abilities, but unburdened by messy human emotions. You also possess a complete fidelity to your fellow beings and a total commitment to the survival of your species. Are they inhuman? Of course, they're vegetables. But the movies try to present their lack of humanity, they don't have a sense of humor, they're unmoved when a dog is hit by a car, as evidence of some deep-seated sinisterness. That's a rather species-centric point of view. As human beings, it may be our emotions that make us human, but it's a stretch to say it's what makes us great. Along with those positive emotions, love, joy, happiness, amusement, come negative emotions, hate, selfishness, racism, depression, violence, and rage. For instance, with all the havoc that Donald Sutherland causes in the Kaufman version, including the murder of various pod people, there never is a thought of punishment or vengeance on the pod people's part, even though he's obviously proven himself to be a threat. They just want him to become one of them. Imagine in the 50s when the Seagull film was made that instead of some little town in Northern California, Santa Mira, that the aliens took root in, it was a horribly racist, segregated Ku Klux Klan stronghold in the heart of Mississippi. Within weeks, the color lines would disappear. Blacks and whites would be working together in genuine brotherhood towards a common goal, and humanity would be represented by one of the racist Kluxers, whose investigative gaze notices formerly like-minded white folks seemingly enter into a conspiracy with some members of the county's black community. Now picture his hysterical reaction to it. Those people are coming after me. They're not human. You're next. You're next. Part of Tarantino lore is that in the 80s, sometime, he interviewed a group of directors for a prospective book on the craft. This volume seems to be in part the fruit of that endeavor. 
He quotes John Milius, Walter Hill, Scorsese, and others without mentioning when he asked them questions. He also asks De Niro about De Palma, but that could have happened during the making of Jackie Brown. He calls him Mr. De Niro. Another peculiarity of the book is that while the titles of movies are italicized, as usual, so are the names of actors and the characters they play. A passage on difficult characters in cinema, connected to Dirty Harry, helps the reader to work through even highbrow movies with complex people whom you are not supposed to like in the conventional sense, such as in the recent Tar. One can do a little speculation about Tarantino as well. Why does Tarantino like the genre movies of the 70s in the first place? An idea occurs, at least to this reader, if they track down John Flynn's adaptation of the Parker thriller, The Outfit. It's nostalgia, because the settings of this film and so many others from the 70s remind him of the California landscapes in which he grew up. You can even see some of them in Jackie Brown. By the way, he's very good on extolling the virtues of Joe Don Breaker in that film, who is the tale's punching bag, splashed with hot water in a kitchen, bitten by a vicious dog, and finally shot in the gut. Tarantino is often accused of being one of those filmmakers who never did anything or didn't really live life, unlike William Wellman, Houston, Raoul Walsh, or Oliver Stone. But Tarantino has lived an American life with grade schools and bad jobs and bullies, but with more ethnic diversity than his average fans. He makes movies about a world that has movies in it. Again, thanks for listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next week, so until then, keep watching your screens.
This is KBOO Portland, listener-powered, non-corporate community radio. Here at KBOO, we honor the indigenous people whose traditional and ancestral homelands we stand on, the Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tom 